Well, we can turn back to the passage you read there from Luke chapter 19. And we can just think about Jesus entering uh, the city. Uh, as we all know, um, none of the Gospels contains everything that is said in all the Gospels. And sometimes we have to compare them just to get further information on the context. If we were just reading the Gospel of Luke, for example, uh, we would think that nothing much happened between verses 28 and 29. And that Jesus had just made his way up from Jericho, uh, where he had met Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, and that he arrived in Jerusalem and rode into the city. I mean, that's the impression we would get if all we had was the Gospel of Luke. But, for example, when we turn to the Gospel of John, uh, we find that uh, Jesus, before this uh, ride into the city, that he had already been in Bethany for the entire weekend. I mean, John chapter 12 begins that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Six days before the Passover, according to the, the method of time that they had back then, was the previous Friday. We know the... the ride into Jerusalem took place on Palm Sunday, which, of course, at that time, it was the day after the Sabbath, and not the Sabbath at that time. So Jesus arrived there in Bethany on the Friday, and he spent the last Sabbath of his life there in Bethany. And that was the occasion when Mary uh, anointed him with the ointment. And then the following day, he rides into um, Jerusalem. But the only, on that particular day that we're going to think about, he only um, moved a very short distance because he already was in Bethany for the weekend. On the Mount of Olives, there's two villages. There's the village of Bethany and the village of Bethphage. And they all run into each other. So when Jesus sent his disciples to go and get this um, colt, they may only have gone to the next street they might have gone further than that, but we don't know how long they went. But all we know is that Jesus and his disciples 
had been in Bethany for the weekend. And of course the fact that they were there for the weekend may have implications for this particular incident. Anyway, we're now starting the last week of Jesus' life. This is the beginning of it in Bethany for that meal where his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, um, hosted him and his disciples and Mary expressed her love for him. And, and Jesus announced, didn't he, to the assembled gathering that she's done this for my burial. When's his burial going to be? Well, within a week. Because following Friday, he's going to be crucified. And Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus are going to put him in Joseph's tomb. So anyway, Jesus knows what's happening. Because he told his disciples and others that this anointment was very special and probably the fragrance would have lasted for a while but it wouldn't have lasted that long so therefore when he says that she's anointed me for my burial he's expecting the burial very soon he knows when it's going to happen so just want to think briefly about this entry into the city. Just want to think about three things. Him receiving the colt and his rejoicing on the road and then him weeping over the city. Him reaching the colt. Bethany, we're told in Acts chapter 1, was only a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. We may wonder how long a Sabbath day's journey was. It was actually about three quarters of a mile. There's no instruction at all in the Bible to authorize what's called a Sabbath day's journey. It was just um, a rule that the Pharisees came up with, one of their rules, but it became a way of identifying a distance to call it a Sabbath day's journey. But it was about three quarters of a mile in its total length. And that's roughly the length of of this um, entry into the city. I don't know what we may have thought how long it lasted for, but it lasted for about three quarters of a mile. And Jesus um, was there. And as we can see, he said to the disciples, uh, go to such and such a place into the village in front of you, which this could be Bethphage that they had entered, because they had, tra- they had been in Bethany and ahead of them going down the Mount of Olives there's the 
village of Bethpage, and then there's the city of Jerusalem, and they all ran into each other. And he says to them, go down there, and you'll see a colt tied. Go and get it. I wonder what we'd have done if that had been said to us. Just imagine it. Jesus has had his weekend in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and so on. And now he's about to go into the city because the Passover's coming. And the first thing he looks as if he's telling his disciples is, go and take something that's not yours. Of course, the disciples were used to Jesus sometimes giving them unusual commands. Unexpected instructions. And I suppose one lesson that comes from this incident involving the cult is that we should obey unusual commandments. Because the Bible is full of unusual commandments. Commandments that may cause us to stand out in a very unexpected way. And there could hardly be anything more unexpected than going up to a stranger's house, outside of which his animals are located, and you just go ahead and take it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus doesn't even say to them, go and ask the man for it. Instead, he just says, if somebody happens to object, you just say the Lord has need of him. But thinking about unusual commandments, what would you have done if you were um, some of the servants at the wedding in Cana? And you had these, these huge um, containers for water. And of course, they're all they're empty. And along comes this stranger and says to you, fill them up with water. I mean, the, the problem they're aware of is there's no wine. What's the point of him talking about water? But they did what they were told. And you almost get the impression from Mary's comment that she was quite used to unexpected commands. Because she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Even if it doesn't somehow seem right. Whatever he says to you, do it. And we know the blessing that came to the wedding in Cana of Galilee as a result of that. And we also know the blessing that came to the, the people here when the two disciples went and obeyed the commandment of Jesus. But I do think it is a challenging thing, isn't it? to obey all the commands in the Bible. 
Because some of them go against the expectations of society. And we say to ourselves, don't we, surely you're not expecting us to do that, Jesus. But the answer is, he is expecting it. And the path of blessing depends on us doing it, whatever the unusual commandment might be. Now, Jesus says to the disciples, go into the village in front of you, where on entering it you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. I suppose the question arises from that is, how did Jesus know it would be there? Because it's quite specific, isn't it? He doesn't just say to him, go into the, the village and somewhere you'll find a colt and take it. He just says, go in the village and you'll see one tied and that's the one to take. How did Jesus know it was there. As far as I can tell, there's two possible answers to that question. And I don't know which one of them is right. Well, the first one would be right anyway, but it may not be the answer to the question I've asked. How did Jesus know it was there? One answer that can be given to that question is he knows everything because he's God. He's divine. As far as his omniscience is concerned, he didn't just only know where this colt was. He actually knew where every colt was in the world. And he could have said where each of them was in that particular moment. So as far as his omniscience is concerned... Well, it was easy for him to say the colt is there tied. That's one suggested answer. There is another one, of course. And that is that Jesus arranged it. Because after all, he's been in Bethany for the weekend. He's had plenty of time to arrange it. He could have asked the owner of the house, who was a disciple. A disciple that perhaps the disciples themselves were not aware of. Because the man is obviously a disciple, because when the people object, the disciples are told to say to him, the Lord has need of it. And this individual immediately agrees that Jesus can have the colt. So maybe that is what happened. That during the weekend that he was in Bethany, Jesus arranged for the the cult to be there. And we shouldn't find that too surprising, because after all, he knew that he would have to ride into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, that he'd have to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a cult that no one had ever ridden on. And there's nothing unsuitable 
and Jesus arranging that. So anyway, you can take your pick. Which option was it? How did Jesus know it was there? Was it because of his omniscience? Or was it because he arranged it? Maybe both are true. But it just shows us, doesn't it, his sense of awareness. I mean, if we knew that in six days' time in the city of Jerusalem, we're going to be put to death, would we have been concerned about going into the city? I think most of us would have made sure we wouldn't go into the city. But Jesus, as he makes his way to the city, his mind is governed by what the Bible says. And there's only a week for this prophecy of Zechariah to be fulfilled. If it doesn't happen in this week, When is it going to happen? And Jesus, he governed his life, everything, even to the animal that he would ride into the city that was governed by the word of God. But also, we could also ask about this particular incident How would Jesus know the colt would be tied when the disciples would get there? I mean, how long is it going to take them to get there? He just said, go into the village and there you'll find it. That could take a minute, five minutes, ten minutes. How would Jesus know that at the precise moment when they arrived, the animal would be tied. Because the fact that it is tied <clears throat> is the sign that it's the animal. It's very unlikely there'd only be one donkey or one colt in the village. Everybody had them. It's the same kind of sign that was he gave to the two when they went to find the the room for the Lord's Supper. You'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Jesus just gives this very clear evidence to them that this is the animal, the one that's tied. How did Jesus know it would be tied the minute they arrived? Well, surely that tells us that he's in control of events even if he's not physically present at them. Whether he said to the man, the owner, tie it there, and one of my disciples will get it, or whatever the way it was, who's in control? Well, the king's arriving. We'd expect him to be in control. But would a normal king be in control of such minutiae? 
that our king, he's in control of everything. Even the way the donkey or the colt is connected to whatever it was tied. And that, of course, should give us great confidence. I mean, everything in life that's going to happen to us, if we're trusting the Lord, is as much arranged as this donkey being tied, this colt being tied. And it's good to know that, isn't it? There's nothing haphazard. From one point of view, this last week in the life of Jesus looks chaotic, doesn't it? But from the real point of view, everything is just going the way it should have gone. Mapped out for him before he came into the world. So we can see the value of obedience. Don't just obey his, what we regard as reasonable commands. Obey them all. And we see his sense of awareness. He knows what to do at every moment. And we see his control of all circumstances even down to the donkey being tied. That leads us to think, secondly, of rejoicing on the road. And people see him coming, whether they've been with him in Bethany for the weekend or what, we don't know. But anyway, a big crowd sees him coming, and they get, and they see him arriving with the colt, And we're told that they lift him onto the colt and they also put put some of their cloaks on the colt and they set Jesus on it, as it says there, down in verse 35. And then they start taking off their cloaks all down this three quarters of a mile and just laying them on the road. I mean, what are they doing? They're creating a highway for God, aren't they? They're creating a highway for the arrival of the Messiah. In a very graphic way, he's not even touching the ground. Instead, he's walking on these um, cloaks and coats that they have put there. They're making a highway for the Lord. And it's all voluntary and all spontaneous. It must be an incredible sight. Just try and imagine it. There's the colt with Jesus sitting on it. And as it makes its way down the hill, the old Mount, of Olive, Mount of Olives, as you go down it, there's all these people and they're just throwing their cloaks in front of the, of the colt. It's a gesture, but it's a gesture of gladness. The king has arrived. And if he wants to use our possessions as a means for him to travel, then we'll put our cloaks down for him. You know, and there's something beautiful about things that are voluntary and spontaneous, isn't there? We could imagine these people making their way to Jerusalem that day, 
And we could have said to them, and they would have probably shaken their heads if we had asked them, what are you going to do with your cloaks today? And they would have said, well, well, probably nothing really. But you know, is there not a lesson from this? (laughs) There's nothing that cannot be used for Jesus. There's nothing that we have that cannot be used for him. Even their cloaks were used in a way of serving him. Making a royal road, a kind of carpet for the king to enter the city on. And this arrival, of course, is a fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah tells us there in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? This is a literal and a visible fulfillment of a wonderful prediction. I mean, there are predictions that were fulfilled literally, but not visibly. I mean, the first verse of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's fulfilled literally, but it's not fulfilled visibly. Nobody looking at the cross could have said, I know what's happening there. Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? But nobody could see into his heart. It's a literal fulfillment, certainly. But we can't see what it was like for him to be bearing the wrath of God. That's hidden from our eyes. But here, it's both literal and visible. The crowd can see the king arriving. And what kind of king do they see? They were used to Pilate appearing, riding into the city. They were used to Herod coming into the city. But they never came in the way this one came in. Because the prophecy highlights the difference. And it says about him that he's humble and mounted on a donkey. Here's the arrival of the great king. And the feature that stands out is his humility. There's nothing pompous about his arrival. He's sitting on a borrowed donkey. The items on which he sits are borrowed clothes. The road on which he's marching, or the donkey's marching, is borrowed items. 
there's actually nothing, is there? Or very little that is actually his as he makes his entrance into the city. Humble. And as we look at him arriving, there's actually nothing surprising, is there? Because every time we ever see him, all we ever see is humility. This is the one who made himself of no reputation. And his arrival here was not the arrival of an emperor. It's not the arrival of a man making his way to Pilate's palace. He is going to get to Pilate's palace, but he's going to get there under arrest. Here's the king who's given up everything. Humble has been his life. And he doesn't change it on this occasion. As people look at him, they're not going to say, this man is wealthy. They're going to say, he's humble. It's an extraordinary achievement, isn't it, to express humility on your days of trial. And here's a crowd celebrating his arrival. And his humility stands out. never been a king like this and never has a conqueror arrived in such a manner I wonder what Jesus looked like as he made his way along the road listening to all the sounds of praise coming out I think he was waving to the crowd. Do you think he was announcing, I am here? Or was there a look of solemnity on his face? Were the tears that he was about to shed, were they starting to flow? It's interesting how parades are presented and what's expected at them. I mean, he's going somewhere. This journey is not taking him to an earthly crown. The only earthly thing he's going to get from this journey is a cross. And I suspect amongst the rejoicing crowd there was one face that was marked by the pain he was about to endure. 
But as with any other time Jesus appears, choices have to be made. And choices have to be made here. You can't look at Jesus and remain neutral. And the crowd, they sang Psalm 118. We sang it not so long ago. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were glad to see him. Although we suspect they didn't understand what was happening. But at least they were rejoicing that he had arrived. But then there were some Pharisees there. And they were quick to spoil it. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They saw the king. Humble. But all they saw was a teacher. And Jesus, of course, says to them, if they didn't sing about me, the stones would. I'm telling them that although he was humble, he deserved praise. He deserved praise because who he is, the eternal, the eternal son. But sadly, the Pharisees couldn't see that. But a choice had to be made. And a choice always has to be made. Are you for him or against him? Then briefly, weeping over the city. You know, when important people arrive in a city, they make a speech. And Jesus, when he arrives at the city, he makes a speech. And the people would be expecting him to make a speech. After all, when kings come, they got plans for the future. Their ideas of city development, we might say. What does the arrival of this king mean for the city? Well, he tells them. He tells them that they don't understand what's happening. And because they don't understand what's happening, the days are going to come when the city is going to be destroyed. What a strange, unexpected, deliverance. What would we have said when we heard this, the address of the arriving king? Predicting disaster. But that is what he did. We have to be, note what he's not saying. He's not saying if you had accepted me, the trouble wouldn't The trouble would have been avoided. That's not what he's saying at all. 
But he is saying that if they had accepted him, they would have avoided the trouble. Because they had discovered that he's the way of peace, not their pointless religion. It was their adherence to their religion that led them to be there when they rebelled against the Roman Empire and their city was destroyed. But if they had turned to Jesus, to Jesus who was going to the cross, they'd have started living for another kingdom. And they'd have avoided that experience that sadly lay ahead of the city. Anyway, Jesus weeps. What an extraordinary follow-up to the riding on the donkey. He gets to this part of the hill where he can see the city. And he weeps. There might be many reasons for him weeping his last time. Recalling the many times he'd been there. After all, it was in that city that Simeon had identified him. Now mine eyes have seen your salvation. It was in that city when he was 12 years of age he went to the temple and discussed with the elders there about his mission. It was in this city that a few years before this he had met Nicodemus. It was in this city that he had offered himself to be the water of life. But here he is now He's got a heart full of sorrow. Sorrow tells a lot about people. The things that make us sad. I wonder what Jesus would do if he came to Inverness. Would he weep? He was the man of sorrows. His eyes were wide open. He saw what life was like. He saw the sadnesses, the causes of the sadnesses. And it broke his heart. He's a real man. Being stoical is not the way. He's not out of control as he weeps. He's in full control of all his faculties. Doesn't stifle them. Just weeps. His heart of sorrow. He said on one occasion, talking about 
his Christ-like followers. He said about them, Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's good to be distressed. It's a sign of spiritual discernment. A dry eye can indicate an empty heart. It can mean being blind to the reality of a situation. Jesus wept. The psalmist says that those who travel through the valley of Baca on a pilgrimage, they fill it with water. Tears. Tears are normal for an earthly journey. It's abnormal not to have them. There's lots to make us sad. And even joyful crowds don't hide it. Even hearing people saying to him, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Brings tears from the Savior. Close with this. But I do think it's a very challenging question. And I ask it of myself. When did we last weep for the streets we live in? For the city we're in. If the king of kings. Could weep. Should not his followers do the same. Ahead of this city. Was a terrible event. But ahead of everyone. Is a terrible event. Tears say what words cannot say. Tears reveal our heart. They reveal the heart of the man of sorrows. How else did they know he was a man of sorrows? So that's him entering the city on his final week. A marvelous parade. But he knew where he was going. Shall we pray?